Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Bullshit Filter, episode 18. Welcome back, Raymondo. Thank you, Cam. I appreciate that. And to you. Now, at the end of our last episode... um, you were talking about policies on blowjobs and kissing women, but aside from that, we were talking about we were talking about um, I wanted uh, to mention- Bashar al-Assad and this interview that he did with yeah. Barbara Walters uh, to, at the end of 2011. Um, I want to play some more clips from this a uh, few minutes. Uh, well, actually, just one more uh, clip I want to play. Again, he's sort of talking here about. Syria as being the fault line of the Middle East and also how he ended up as president. Kind of fascinating. Here we go. You said um, that if there is any outside attempt to bring you down, it would mean an earthquake. What do you mean by that? Syria is the fault line in the Middle East. You know, the Middle East generally is very diverse in ethnicities, in sects, uh, in religions. But Syria, the most diverse, and this is the fault line where all these diversity meet. So it's like the fault line of the uh, earth, of the, of the earth. Mm-hmm. When you play with it, you'll have earthquake that is going to affect the whole region. So playing doesn't mean to overthrow me or to deal with me. It's not about me. It's about the, the, the fabric of, of the society in this region. That's what I mean. You know, your father led this country for 30 years until his death. You yeah. have now led the country for more than a decade. Yeah. If the Arab Spring means anything, it seems to be that the era of one family rule yeah. is over. Yeah. No, I never supported being a dynasty. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. being a dynasty. You're not raising your son to no, no, succeed. No, 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 no. And the, my father never spoke with me in politics. You don't believe this. We never, and he never tried to prepare me. He always wanted me to be a president. Against what you hear in the media, that he asked me to come from London. He wanted me to go back to London to continue, and I refused. But it, your older brother was supposed to be, take your father's place. When no. he was killed, no, he had your no father posi- asked you to come back. My brother had no position when my father was there, and I had no position. I, wasn't, I was nothing in the party. I was, only, I, was milita- I was in the military since I was doctor. Nothing else. But your father did not expect his sons to take his place? Never. He never spoke about this. Really? Yeah. Then, then with all due respect, yeah, you're, yeah. you're a doctor. You're an ophthalmologist. How did you become the leader of this country? I was a military doctor, and according to our laws, that's uh, uh, military law, you can move from uh, speci- uh, how to say sector to sector within the army. Okay. So I left the... Uh, I was a military doctor. Even when I was in London, I was a military doctor. The army sent me to London, not the uh, Ministry of Higher Education, for okay. example, or anything, or, or the university. Or the university. And I was so I was in the army since 1985, since I was a student at the school. Few people knew that. I wasn't civil doctor. 
So anyway, when I became when I became president, I became president through the party after President Assad died. Not the, when not the, when he was alive, I was nothing. I didn't have any position. But when your father died, mm. the son became the leader. Yes. So there there were not free elections to make you the leader. No, anyway, we don't have free election. We no. have a referendum. This is our constitution. So your constitution said we want the son. No, not the constitution. The party. The party said. And, and the people demonstrating. And they surrounded the parliament, they said, we need the president. So many people who didn't want the president in the government, they accepted this new president. And I, and I, I nominated myself. Before that, I never thought about it. So mm. when you have elections, which you say is, is in 2014, mm. you will have opposition parties? Yeah. Yes? We, we, we have them already Okay. Now. And if they want somebody else and not you, you say okay and you step down? The people will say, okay. The people will say, okay, of course you have, you have to, be, to leave. That's not self-evident. You don't have to discuss it. To stay, to be president, while the people don't want to, how can you, can, how can you succeed? You are not training your eldest son, who is now no. eight, He's eight, to be, no. take your place? <laughs> you I was never trained uh, to, be, to, to be in this place. Do you sometimes wish that you were still an ophthalmologist? No, because I was in the public sector anyway. As son of president, I couldn't have my own clinic and get money from the people. So I was in public sector, now in wider public sector, in the same uh, place. So you, you, you wish you still have a kind of, let's say, emotional feeling toward, toward that job, and I still have my friend. I'm, I'm still in touch with the new uh, innovations in that field. But you cannot look back to see yourself as a doctor. Now you have more no, important position. You have said often that you don't see yourself doing this job for life. You've said mm. you're doing it for your country. Mm. With all the turmoil in your country, is it perhaps better for Syria that you no longer remain its leader? I don't have problem. For me, Syria is a project, project of success. If you don't succeed, you don't have to stay in that position. And that success, again, depends on the public support. Without public support, you cannot. Whether you're elected or not, it's not about election now. It's about public support. This is the most important thing. So when I feel that the public support declined, I won't be here. Even if they say, if they ask or not, I shouldn't be here if there's no public support. On 30th of December, a week or two after that interview, six million people rallied against Bashar across <laughs> Syria. Uh, 500,000 people alone in uh, the Idlib and Hama provinces. And of course, he said, well, obviously I don't have the support of the people, so uh, now it's time for me to step down. <laughs> or not. <laughs> he was like, well, six oh million... Oh, you know, that's only really uh, half of our adult population, so that's not that doesn't count. The other, what about the other no. six million? Huh? Huh? What about them? That's right. They're not six protesting. million in one. They like me. Yeah. Yes, I don't know, man. Like he is such a fascinating character. He comes across as so mild mannered and um, humble. Um, but it just, yeah. Oh, I didn't even want to be president. Yeah. No, it was just an accident. Yeah. I just yeah. woke up one day and everyone said, hey, why don't you be president? I was like, nah, come on, really? It's Tuesday. Yeah. And they said, yeah, it's all right. I'm a doctor. Yeah, no, go ahead. Put yourself up. R write yourself, write your name down on a piece of paper. Put it in a hat. Maybe Who you'll knows what could happen? Who That's knows? Right. Crazy Million things. to one chance.
Crazier things have happened, Bashar. <laughs> sure, you've got no experience. Don't worry mm. about it. Don't worry about it. So in the middle of December, actually, um, initially, hundreds of thousands of Syrians took to the streets to protest against Bashar. So it's turned here from protesting for to protesting against. Um, and then the Syrian ambassador to Sweden, Mohammed Bassem Imadi, defected. And from this point on, we start mm. to see a lot of high-ranking political and military guys defect on a fairly regular basis. Um, Imadi said, people even high up aren't loyal to the government, but they can't do anything. They're scared for their lives and families. I have so many friends who have said this to me. Um, he also said, at the very start, people were angry with the regime for corruption and bad government, and that could have been corrected by reforms, but the government responded with repression and killing. This is an ambassador, a Syrian ambassador saying this. So that's when six million people uh, went out into the streets on the 30th of December yeah. rallying against Bashar. I was just going to say, after after listening to that last segment of the interview, um, I don't even think he is a good liar, but I think after your father's been in charge and he's been in charge for over a year, he doesn't really have to put up with people. He doesn't have to lie. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it was the language barrier, but I, I don't think he was that persuasive. But he does get some help in um, mid-December of 2011. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, steps up and says, not only should the West not call for his downfall, uh, for him to step down, but it should condemn the actions of the free Syrian army, which is nothing more than a bunch of, you know, rebels, a bunch of bandits, a bunch of terrorists, whatever you want to call them. So again, the Russians are right there with him saying, no, he's not. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's trying to maintain order. It's the other guys who are causing the chaos. They're the ones you should be judging. So again, Russia's uh, through their ambassador, through their foreign minister, excuse me, is right there with him hand in hand, trying to support him during this very difficult time. Hmm. Getting back to that interviewer, like he said, for me, being president is just a project of success. If, and if it's not a success, I should just not be here. I mean, it goes without saying. You don't even have to discuss it. I was listening to that thinking, all right, now he's got half a million people dead, 12 million people, half the population displaced. At what point do you go, well, maybe, maybe it hasn't been that success could be that I doing better. it would be. Maybe. Uh, well, maybe he's going, look, it yeah. could be worse. It's a success. Could be worse. Could be a lot worse. Could be all dead. So, you know, really, got to be a cup half full kind of person. Uh, you know, he wakes up, he listens right. to Phil Collins in the morning. He listens to Elton John. He listens to a Tony Robbins tape. And he's going, you know, I just, I, I want to stay positive about this. I want to look look on the bright side. Yeah. I'm still standing, you know. Yeah. Um, early in January 2012... Yeah. The head inspector of the Syrian Ministry of Defense, Mahmoud Sleeman Haj Hamad, defected to the opposition. The head inspector of the Ministry of Defense. Now, he held, a press, a, he held a press conference in Cairo to announce his defection. He did an interview with Al Jazeera. Um, and he said that uh, there was no terrorists being aided from abroad, as the government claimed. He said, we were analyzing, analyzing and seeing for ourselves that the regime's story about armed gangs going out and killing protesters was all lies. I confirm there are no armed gangs. They are all unarmed protesters. 
He said yeah. the government had spent about $40 million on militias to crush demonstrations since March as uh, security forces laid siege to protest hubs across the nation. He was doing auditing <clears throat> of the military finances. He said, while auditing, I found 2 billion Syrian pounds, about $40 million, paid out to the regime's paid thugs. And I've seen an increase in the spending of the intelligence and defense ministries for the purpose of paying thugs. We saw them preparing and heading out in their armored vehicles and buses toward the young protesters and killing them. It has been happening since the beginning of the protests. Syrian government officials live in a kind of prison. No one can go anywhere without being accompanied by a member of the security services. Now... The problem with his statement, though, is that at this point, there are definitely Syrian soldiers being killed. At one, mm-hmm. By one count, there's sort of more than a thousand. I think in that interview with uh, Barbara Walters, Bashar claimed 1,100 soldiers have been killed. Uh, journalists like Robert Fisk and Patrick uh, Cockburn, who uh, either were in or had been in or had contacts in Damascus, witnessed the funerals on TV, state funerals for these soldiers. So either that's all being uh, faked or there are soldiers being killed. Are they being killed by civilians, unarmed protesters, as uh, Hamad claims, or are they being killed by uh, defected members of the Syrian army who had created the Free Syrian Army, or is it by ISIS, or is it by some other form of armed rebel? We don't know. Uh, at this point, but it, it it does seem like it's not just the army against unarmed protesters. Even that version of the truth doesn't really make any sense when soldiers are being killed. Thousands or more soldiers are being killed. Yeah, if I can add on to that, that's why when I was out reading, I think it was BBC, um, and this wasn't supposedly initially known when the clashes started, but that this came out like a year and a half later about this time that the reason that the, you didn't hear as much about the civilians attacking the army was supposedly it didn't make for uh for, for good copy. Basically it's, it's more, it helps to sell newspapers just to show this over the top oppressive government, just slaughtering innocent people, which obviously happened. But at the same time, because certain powerful families and factions wanted to take a chance at bringing Assad down, supposedly they had access to weapons. They were able to give to certain people, rebels, whatever you want to call them. And so they did earlier than what we imagine, or at first what we first thought, uh, they did have access to certain weapons, um, rifles and that kind of thing, small rockets uh, to actually take on the soldiers. So again, we'll probably never know the truth as far as who was fighting who and when did it start and who's backing who. But this obviously very quickly got, got ugly and it, it seems to be a power play couched within the civil war. Can I, I wanted to mention another defection. You were just adding on to that. Um, on January 7th, the fightings obviously continued in, in the western part of the country. Uh, Colonel Hafif Mohammed Suleiman of the Syrian Air Force Logistics Division defected with at least 50 of his men. And the first thing they tried to do was they went to the city of Hama. And the colonel says, the Syrian army attacked Hama with heavy weapons air raids, and heavy fire from tanks. We asked the Arab League observers to come visit areas affected by these raids and attacks so you can see the damage with your own eyes. And we ask you to send someone to uncover the three cemeteries 
uh, in Hama filled with 460 corpses. So obviously someone's killing these people. Not all of them can be rebel fighters. A lot of them, it sounds like, were civilians who were probably supporting the rebels. So, But again, there's just a lot of killing going on. And for uh, Assad to say he, the army doesn't, you know, doesn't answer to him, he's just the president, just makes no sense to me. Yeah, and also in January, the highest-ranking defector uh, happened uh, so far anyway. General Mustafa Ahmed el-Sheikh of the Syrian army defected to join the FSA. Now, Mm. you know, you can see this as a coup. I mean, that's really what is going on here. When you have military uh, abandon their support for the government and try and overthrow the government, it's a coup. It's a military coup. I mean, you, you, you know, the, the, the wording that you use to, to describe things like this makes a big difference. If you describe it as they defected to join the rebels, uh, it sounds much, you know, it's like they went to join Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker right. to fight the uh, Emperor and Darth Vader. But when you say, well, they, they joined the coup, the conspiracy or the coup to overthrow the government, it, it sounds very different, right? Same mm-hmm. thing, though. Right. Then in February, the leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, released a video where he urged all Muslims to support the Syrian rebels. Damn. So, on one hand, you've got Assad killing civilians. On the other hand, you've got Al-Qaeda. Uh, not sure which one of those I'm going to fall, come down right. to support. Right. <laughs> uh, then, one. in March, uh, there was another defection. Army intelligence officer Abdel Barakat. Now, he was important because he brought with him hundreds of documents when he went to Turkey, which seemed to be files detailing orders from Bashar al-Assad to crack down on and kill protesters. Right. So he was like, here's the proof that the orders had come directly from Bashar, uh, you know, d- despite what Bashar was saying on his interview with uh, Barbara Walters, that there was no order. Here are the orders. Right. And and just another definitive moment in this crisis, if you will, um, on February of 2012, if you do not agree with the United Nations when they said on December 1st, 2011, this is now being characterized as a civil war. Um, in February of 2012, the Arab League had set up a monitoring mission, which started in December of, 20, of 2011, and which the Syrian government agreed to allow foreign observers from the Arab League to monitor uh, Syria's progress in removing troops from protest areas, freeing political prisoners, and negotiating with the dissidents or the rebels. But the Arab League um, monitoring mission officially gave up in February of 2012. They say the fighting was so intense, the Syrian Ba'athist troops were fighting militias, and at this point they're not sure who's fighting against who, but the fighting was so constant and there was no way to negotiate with the various sides that they had to pull these observers out. So from you, you, even the Arab League from February 2012 is pretty much saying this is an all-out fight. We can no longer even pretend to have observers in here, and we're out of here. And, and that, that's a pretty pretty radical departure from just saying it's an internal struggle. Speaking of Turkey, in early 2012, Seymour Hirsch, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, uh, for those who don't know who he is, haven't heard me talk about him before, 
He is an American journalist who exposed the My Lai massacre in the Vietnam War. He also exposed the Abu Ghraib torture program in the early 2000s. Um, very credible uh, investigative journalist. Now, he claimed that in early 2012, the CIA put into place what it calls a rat line, a back-channel highway into Syria running through Turkey. Mm-hmm. And now, it was used, again, according to Hirsch and his sources, to funnel weapons and ammunition from Libya via southern Turkey into Syria to get to the opposition. Damn. Now, Libya, of course, had just fallen to NATO, American-led intervention in Libya. And now Mm -hmm. there are weapons being run to the uh, opposition. Now, again, this is just Hirsch's contention. And a lot of Hirsch's stuff is based on anonymous sources. He's got, you know, very deep, deep contacts in the U.S. military, in the U.S. uh, uh, bureaucracy, going back to the Vietnam War. And unfortunately, a lot of his stuff, therefore, he, he isn't able to quote people. It's anonymous mm-hmm. sources, which is, uh, you know, a journalistic practice that I hate because you can just make up shit. You can't tell who the, what the credibility of the sources are. But the difference here is that, at least in my book, take it or leave it, but Hirsch is fairly credible. And he has right. broken a lot of American military scandals, or two in particular, in going back over a 50-year uh, career. And uh, he should be treated, he should be given, I think, the benefit of the doubt based on his track record. Um, and, and every time he's broken one of these, the American administration of the time has come out and called bullshit on it, said right. that Hirsch had bad, bad information, he was a kook, he was crazy. But at least in those two instances, it came out that uh, he was right. Anyway, um, he's also claiming that m- many of the weapons that were running through this rat line ended up in the hands of jihadists affiliated with al-Qaeda or al-Nusra. Great. So, you know, the U.S. is, if this is true, the U.S. is directly putting weapons in the hand of terrorist organizations in Syria. Now, he goes further to explain um, the connection between this and the Benghazi attack. People, of course, will have heard of the Benghazi attack. I don't know how many people paid much attention to it. But um, on the 11th of September 2012, the U.S. consulate in Libya was attacked. The U.S. ambassador uh, there, J. Christopher Stevens, was killed. And there was obviously this big um, congressional inquiry hearings into what happened. But whether or not you followed all of that, you should know that uh, when it initially happened, at the behest of the CIA... Top U.S. officials, from Obama through to Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the time on down, they described the attacks as the result of spontaneous protests that were triggered by the release of an anti-Muslim video, Innocence of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it was just upsetting to the Muslim people, so they just said, fuck it, and they went crazy and they attacked the U.S. consulate. Um. What came out in later investigations was the attack was actually premeditated 
And according to Hirsch, it may have had to do with the existence of the rat line. That people knew that the US was supporting Al-Qaeda by funneling weapons through this rat line into Syria. Now, there was a secret CIA base quite close to the US consulate that was also Mm -hmm. attacked um, on 11th and I think the 12th of September 2012. So the the attack on the US consulate was just a distraction, um, apparently, so they could go and attack the CIA base. Uh, but the, the U.S. government, CIA, didn't want to release all of that information, that it was uh, you know, a retaliation attack against the U.S. for supporting the uh, overthrow of the Libyan government and their involvement in uh, funneling weapons to terrorists in Syria. So they said, oh, they just saw a video and they got really upset and they attacked us. No, I was just going to say we can't. Not that you're probably leaving the subject, but we can't go no. anywhere. I saw the video of Hirsch being interviewed about the assassination, if you will, of Osama bin Laden, and wow, that was just some powerful stuff that I can't wait to talk about later. Blew me yeah. away. Yeah, yeah, he's always been this skeptical. Guy's got sources. Yeah, he's always been skeptical of the bin Laden assassination story, as have I. Even before Hirsch came out with his stuff, just reading the. Uh, official stories of it. They changed like 14 times in a couple of days. They right. they dumped his body in the ocean. Really? That What? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, just the whole thing smelled of cover-up. Something smelled fishy um, anyway. Yeah. Now, Hirsch says that when the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee re- released a report on the Benghazi attacks in early 2014... There was a highly classified annex to the report that wasn't made public, which described Mm -hmm. a secret agreement reached early in 2012 between the Obama administration and Erdogan's administration in Turkey regarding the rat line. The terms of the agreement said that the funding would come from Turkey as well as Saudi Arabia and Qatar, the CIA, with the support of MI6, were going to be responsible for getting arms from Gaddafi's arsenals into Syria, and that there was a number of front companies set up in Libya that were going to be handling all of this. Some of them were under the cover of being Australian entities. God. So it's good to know that we have something to do with all of this. We're not completely useless. Yeah, you can yeah, just use one of our companies, mate. Doesn't matter. No one's going to look hard. They go, what's going on there? Oh, they're Aussies. Oh, fuck, they're Aussies. Oh, don't worry about it then. You know, see, the, the great thing about being Aussies is we're great cover because right, it doesn't harmless. matter what... Some people go, look, there's something crazy going on over there. What is it? Oh, they're Aussies. Oh, they're Aussies. Oh, fuck. Oh, well, they're crazy, those Aussies. That explains it. Crazy, oh, nice, nice one. Crazy but harmless, Aussies. We, we, we're the perfect cover. Now, again, Hirsch claims that uh, this ratline thing was run by retired American military mm-hmm. who didn't really know who was employing them, didn't ask questions, just took the paycheck. Um, right. They were hired to manage the procurement and the shipping of the weapons to get into, into the ratline. He said the operation was run by David Petraeus, who at the time was the CIA director, who would not long thereafter resign when it became known he was having an affair with his biographer. Jeez. Uh, Now, 
when um, the attack in Benghazi happened, the, uh, Washington quickly shut down the CIA's role in getting arms into the rat line. But according to Hirsch, the rat line kept going. Uh, now it was just Turkey funneling weapons to terrorists and rebels in Syria uh, and the you know, US. Why wouldn't they want to? And the US didn't have any visibility of it. Of course, right? I mean, let's recall that, uh, you know, the relationship between Turkey and Syria has been hot and cold going back decades uh, since the time it was still the Ottoman Empire. When it was broken up uh, after World War One, there were bits of Syria that ended up as Turkey and all that kind of stuff. So their relationship hasn't been great, and uh, the, you know I think there's a bit of whose dick is bigger relationship between Erdogan <laughs> and the Al Assads. Right. So you know, so um, so that's yeah. worth keeping in mind that even before, and we'll see in later episodes, the CIA then officially got involved and spent. $500 million trying to train rebels in Syria. And I think they ended up with five uh, rebels as a result of that, that they could say, yep, that's what we got for our $500 million. <laughs> and I'm not bullshitting five here. That, that's rebels. real. No, no. That's, that's a real real, number. real real number and a real number of rebels that they came up with. We'll talk about that later. But the point being here that it was being done by black ops uh, secretly much earlier in the process, early early 2012. Again, this is just based. I'm not saying this is this is this is necessarily fact. This is Seymour Hersh's accounts. Um, I I give him a lot of respect because of his track record, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know with a lot of this stuff, it, it it's hard to get verifiable facts this soon in the game. We, we'll probably know more 50 years from now. I think our job as the bullshit filter is to look at all of the sources and try and determine which of the sources are most likely to be credible versus those which are most likely to be spurious and, you know, take the ones that come from credible sources. Now, you may or may not agree with Hirsch on a lot of things, but uh, again, I think his track record uh, indicates that he tends to be credible. Yeah, and, and, just and he also quickly, gets I'll the make... respects. Sorry, he also he also has the respect of a lot of other uh, independent investigative journalists, which you know right. says a lot. Yeah, and and just would and I'll just mention this when he was doing that interview about the Osama bin Laden, he said, "Look, I've got the sources I've got. I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you don't have them, but I've known these guys for plenty of years, and they tell me the truth. So again, it all just comes down to his sources, and I think his accusations will be will be will be borne out. But on uh, March fifteenth of twenty twelve. It was the one-year anniversary of the uprisings. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of uh, marches in the streets pro and against Assad, which led to more clashes, which led to more rallies, which led to more defections. So it's the entire thing just amped up even more and even more defections from Syrian army officers are coming along. And just days later, uh, the UN Security Council endorses, and this is important, a non-binding peace plan drafted by UN envoy Kofi Annan. 
China and Russia agree to it because they pretty much pull all the teeth out of it. It pretty much says that uh, the Security Council, including Russia and China, have agreed to a statement backing Kofi Annan's six-point plan for ending the violence. It calls for a daily two-hour ceasefire, troop withdrawals, and talks between the opposition and the regime. And, there, and of course, it's a non-binding statement that includes, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't include anything about Assad stepping down, and there's very little threatening the, uh, the Syrian government if it doesn't comply. But they had to water it down so much in order for Russia and China to sign it that it was meaningless, but at least they tried, and of course it didn't last very long. So the UN is doing something, they're going through the motions, but Assad's allies um, are blocking everything because they, they're in a position to do exactly that. By the way, I think it's pronounced Kofi Annan, not Kofi Annan. Oh, Kofi Annan. Annan. Sorry, that's, I apologize. That's, that's all right. Annan. I know I'm the last person who should be uh, criticizing the pronunciation of anything <laughs> on our shows. But I know, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. In, Amer- in America, we call the former Egyptian president um, Hosni Bubar- Mubarak. Mubarak. Right. Mubarak yeah. instead of Mubarak. Mubarak. Right, right. Yeah. Which I, I don't know if that's right. I was just ah, throwing that out it. as an example. Okay. There is no He's right. dead. Just make it up. Is he? Yeah. I, I thought he was. I don't think he's dead. No. Really? I think he went to prison. I think he got out of prison. I don't think he. Uh, I don't think he's dead okay. yet. He's old. He politically be dead. Politically dead. <laughs> yeah. Look it up now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought he died. Uh, no, not dead. Eighty nine. Damn. Yeah. So, um, meanwhile, while all this is going on, thousands of young Saudi men have snuck into Syria via Jordan and Turkey. And it is believed by some people that these men have been encouraged by the Saudi government and wealthy Saudi elite to fight a jihad against the Syrian regime. There are even reports that Saudi judges were telling uh, people arrested for protesting in Riyadh, listen, go fight the real enemy, the Shia in Syria. You can go to jail or you can go fight in Syria. And they're like, well, oh, oh, fuck, I'll go fight. Me, I'd be going, send me to jail, motherfucker. Like three square meals a day, I'm good. Um, I mean, okay, I have to avoid getting raped in the showers and getting right. shanked, but at least Or it's don't not, avoid it, whatever. Yeah. Or, ta- or, or tanks. Hey, no more rape jokes, man. We've, we, we decided right. we can't. No more no, rape jokes. No. No, no right. No. Rape is not mm. a joke. It's not. Tanks are not a joke either. But the point no. is, I mean, it, it's got to be it's got to be the highest, almost the highest violation of what a judge can do to literally send someone to a war, which has this, nothing to do with their crime or their punishment. You know, this happens in the U.S., though, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 my, um, my friend Graydon Square, the rapper. Um, when I say my friend, I interviewed him once, like fifteen years ago. <laughs> so he's my friend. You're a good friend. Yeah, um, hey, uh, great. If you if if you're an atheist and you like rap, go to Spotify. Look up Graydon Square, G R E Y D O N. He's um, he's a physicist, rapper. And oh, he just raps about physics and science and atheism. Um, it's it's brilliant, very very good stuff. Like brilliant, brilliant beats, brilliant flow, great lyrics. 
But he told me his story. He was, uh, you know, he's a black kid, grew up somewhere in the South. I don't remember where exactly. Um, got done for B&E or some drugs or something like that. I can't remember. I think it was B&E. And um, the judge gave him a choice. You go and do five years hard time or you go and do five years in the military. So he went and did the military and, um, yeah, came out and uh, ended up going to school and studying physics and becoming a rapper. Anyway. I knew that was big in the eighties and the nineties. I wasn't, I haven't heard about it lately, but no, yeah, I have, especially in the South, that was quite a common um, solution for problems. Like yeah, that. this would have been in, I guess, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, during the Iraq invasion, Damn, early days, right. 2003, four, something like that, I think. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, it, so it happens, uh, happens in the US. It happens in Saudi Arabia as well, apparently. Um, the Saudis, of course, were hoping to weaken Iran by taking control of Damascus. Um, there's mm-hmm. a guy, Muhammad Fad al-Qahtani, a human rights activist and an economics professor at the Institute of Diplomatic Studies in Riyadh, who said in an interview I read that the Saudi government wants to diffuse domestic pressure by recruiting young kids to join in another proxy war in the region. Now, this is sort of a classic tactic. One of the reasons a lot of people suggest If you get deep into conspiracy theory thinking, one of the reasons why the U.S. are always fighting wars one place Mm -hmm. or another is the way that you stop any sort of civil war happening back home is you take all young men that show a propensity for um, violence and you either, A, throw them into private prisons or, B... You get them to join the military and go fight a war in another country somewhere. So if you can get if you can get rid of the young men, yeah. uh, then they're not going to stay at home and cause civil unrest, right? What happens if they survive the war and they come home and they're professional killers now? PTSD'd all the fuck. Well, then you have Oklahoma City. Uh, that's what happens then. But you know, just checking. Well, try and make sure. Yeah, Yeah. they come home. They're PTSD'd. They've been trained in how to kill, and we go mental health. No, fuck you. Look after you. No, fuck you. Just you know. Then you throw them in prison. Uh, That's what the prisons are for. So you know, I don't know, man. Yeah, but that's. But this goes back. um, I mean, this this thinking about taking young men and sending them off to war so they don't cause trouble at home is very very old policy this goes back thousands mm-hmm. of years this is uh not new but it still happens obviously today it's it's a good strategy it works um now saudi authorities have a strategic goal in syria which is kind of similar to their goals in yemen which is to replace bashar with someone more friendly to the saudis it's probably mm-hmm. also the the policy of the americans it's the policy of everyone who's on the outs with uh, the al-assad regime bashar once called saudi king abdullah before he died a half man for his inaction during the 2006 war in lebanon Um, or in the words of arnold schwarzenegger a girly man he's a girly man (laughs) and apparently the two guys hated each other 
By the way, getting back to that human rights activist I talked about, Katani, in March 2013, a Saudi court sentenced him to 10 years in prison for providing false information to foreign media. Damn. Sorry about play. that, Katani. Yeah. 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 Um, so hey, where are we can up Can I mention to? something? So for a long... I was... Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to mention something in uh, in mid mid twenty twelve, but I don't want to. That that's ahead of you. Uh, no, that's okay. Wiki wiki. Okay, no, I just wanted to mention that um, the Free Syrian Army is able to plant a bomb in Damascus, which ends up killing three security chiefs, uh, Syria's defense minister, and the president uh, Al Assad's brother-in-law. Obviously, so they're, they're you know this, this has become so much more than just an internal struggle. These guys are going at each other, and in August of 2012, the Prime Minister uh, Riyadh had had. had hijab had defected i think you mentioned that one now he wasn't and you're gonna love this part he wasn't a part of the inner circle so yeah, it wasn't yeah. seen as okay a... oh 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 stop all of that you are jumping ahead dude yeah 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 Oh, okay i'll stop right there yeah i was i was oh. getting into i'm in the middle of my saudi arabia rant i don't want to jump oh, ahead please, back into the story please saudi uh, away uh we'll, we'll pick all that up as we go all right. um Now, for a long time, the Saudis denied any knowledge of their citizens fighting in Syria. But by the end of 2013, Mm -hmm. they started admitting that thousands of their citizens had been going to Syria to fight with the rebels. How many of those joined Al-Qaeda or Al-Nusra Front? We don't really know, but there's a great quote. The former head of MI6, Richard Dearlove, who's literally M like in the Bond movies, from 1999 (laughs) until 2004, he was M. Although in real life, I don't know if you know this, but the head of MI6 in real life is known as C, not M. After Sir Mansfield Cumming, who was the first chief back in the 1920s, which is always, which is why they always say in Bond movies, are you coming, James? (laughs) Oh, Miss Moneypenny, I always look this way. Uh, Anyway, dear love... Claims uh-huh. that Saudi Prince Bandar bin Sultan told him before 9-11 that the time is not far off in the Middle East, Richard, when it will be literally God help the Shia. More than a billion Sunnis have simply had enough of them. Now, I want yeah. to drill down on Bandar bin Sultan a little bit because uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a member of the House of Saud, was the Saudi ambassador to the United States from 1983 to 2005. Then from 2005 to 2015, he was the Secretary General of the National Security Council in Saudi Arabia and Mm -hmm. the Director General of of the Saudi Intelligence Agency from 2012 to 2014. Um. Then he was appointed King Abdullah's special envoy, which lasted until January 2015. Very close relationship with Reagan and the Bush family. How close? So close that he has been given the nickname Bandar Bush. Um, and by 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 uh, the first Bush, by the second Bush, and by the second Bush's daughter, they literally refer to him by that name. Obviously, very 
they spend a lot of time together and not just working either. Yeah. Now, for people who don't know, the Bush family made a lot of money out of oil uh, and they had very close connections as a result with the Saudis. And so, yeah, there's a lot of interrelationships between the Bushes and the Saudis, even without delving into crazy conspiracy theories. I mean, it's, 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 oh, I won't go into it here, but there's, you know, we should do that at some stage. It'd be a good show to do the relationship between the Bush and the family and the Saudis. But there's a lot, there's a lot of ties there that go back decades. Anyway, Dear Love said that uh, he believes that Saudi Arabia is involved in the Sunni rebellions in both Iraq and Syria, the ISIS-led Sunni rebellions. Remember that when she was Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton wrote in uh, December 2009 in a cable that was released by WikiLeaks that Saudi Arabia remains a critical financial support base for al-Qaeda, the Taliban, uh, LET, Lashkar-e-Taiba in Pakistan and other terrorist groups. So again, it's it, it that is the view of you know Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. Saudi Arabia is directly right. supporting Al Qaeda and the Taliban. She said uh, that as so far as uh, Saudi Arabia didn't act against Al Qaeda, it was as a domestic threat, not because. Oh, sorry, wait, let me start again. Ship. She said that when Saudi Arabia did act against al-Qaeda, it was when they were presenting a domestic threat to the Saudis rather than its activities abroad. So a bit like the Muslim Brotherhood. The Saudis are happy to support them when you're doing shit in other countries, but if you start to do shit in our country, no, that's right. that's no good. We need to shut that shit down. <laughs> now, Prince Bandar, getting back to him, was also involved in the CIA's program of uh, illegally and secretly financing the Contras in Nicaragua during the 80s. This is the thing that uh, Oliver North went to prison for, went all the way up through to Ronald Reagan, although he he played the uh, Bashar al-Assad game plan. I was like, what? What? Well, well, I don't know. I can't remember anything about that. I must have been. What was that? Which Worston was that? That I, I I'm sorry. I, I don't remember uh, anything about that. Um, and um, the redacted portion of the 9-11 Commission report, the, the mm-hmm. uh, 28 pages, apparently states that two of the 9-11 hijackers received $130,000 in payment from Bandar's checking account. So what you're saying is this man who worked for the king of Saudi Arabia was using his influence, of which he had a lot over the decades, and money to cause trouble for other countries. And and not just harass them a little bit, but hire people to be terrorists in other countries. The man who was affectionately known by the Bush family as Bandar Bush paid two of the 9-11 hijackers to fly planes into uh, the Twin Towers. Now, I I do know that he also spent money, um, where's it at, anti-communist wars, you know, back in the 80s, against Nicaragua, Angola, and Afghanistan. So, yeah, this guy was uh, very obviously very influential, very powerful, used, used to having his way. And just like kind of what Putin is doing nowadays, fucking with other countries that could potentially be the enemy of you and or your allies, but it seems like he was doing it for a very long time and was probably very good at it. 
Yeah. In his book, Plan of Attack, Bob Woodward, famous, mm-hmm. of course, for breaking the Watergate uh, stories back in the story back in the 70s, right. he claimed that George W. Bush informed Banda of the decision to invade Iraq before he told Secretary of State Colin Powell. Damn. I could see Bush doing that. In all honesty, the way, I could... I could see Why that. the fuck is it Colin and not Colin? Like, who? what is he? Some fucking valley girl? Like, no, no, it's not Colin. It's Colin. Colin. Um, fuck off. It's Colin. Just, shut up. If I ever meet Colin, pal, I'm going to go, shut the fuck up, pal. It's Colin. You're not special. Don't think it's special because you want to pronounce it. I'll pronounce it. And, and Kofi Annan. Like, you're not. You're like, oh. Kofi Ann and Colin, fuck off. <laughs> I'm an American. You, it's my right to be able to say your name any way I want. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so this is Bob Woodward, like uh, not somebody who's associated with conspiracy theories. Um, says the Bush informed Bandar that he was going to invade Iraq before he told Colin Powell. That's um, uh, Putin has accused Bandar of funding Chechen terrorists. Bandar's also very close to John McCain and Lindsey Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've spent a lot of time together. They're always going to Bandar, going out on Bandar's private jet, going on his yachts, hanging out with the Bando. Yeah. Um, Bando says, jump. We say, how many fucking <laughs> missiles do you need to jump, Bandar? Um, fuck John McCain. Uh, I think we said that on a previous show, but I'm going to say it again. Fuck John McCain and his brain cancer. Um uh, <laughs> look, look, I I don't wish ill upon anybody, but um, John McCain doesn't get my sympathy just because he has brain cancer. Like, fuck John McCain. Uh, and fuck Lindsey Graham, too, for that matter. Anyway, um, the Iraqi Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki, has complained about Saudi support for militant groups. His quote, They are attacking Iraq through Syria and in a direct way. And they announced war in Iraq as they announced it on Syria. And unfortunately, it is on a sectarian and political basis. Now, we will remember that Donald Trump was recently in Saudi Arabia and praising them for their fight against terrorism. Um, And he was throwing daggers at Qatar for supporting terrorism. But here we have Hillary, everyone from Hillary Clinton through to the Iraqi Prime Minister, through to fucking the ex-head of MI6 going, no, 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 it's Saudi Arabia that are supporting the terrorists here. (laughs) Through to the, you know, the the 28 pages. Supposedly, I haven't read them, but supposedly they uh, blame... And this is, I mean, this is well known. I mean, this is well accepted now. I'm not not sure about Bandar's personal checking account, but it's well known that the 28 pages that were kept secret say that the Saudis, either the royal family or the government or elites, you know, wealthy Saudi elites, were supporting funding uh, directly or indirectly the 9-11 hijackers. So, fuck. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump can then go and party with the Saudi king and princes and go, oh, fucking, you're doing such a good fucking job against terrorism, mate. And like, like, how? 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 Do, how do we go on, Ray? Really? 
Well, I just have to throw in that it was John McCain who said, thank God for the Saudis and Prince Bandar. So, yeah, so John McCain, who's the other one, Lindsey Graham, they, they've known him for years. They partied uh, in his, his private yacht, uh, not his yacht, his, uh, his private plane. And he's always he's always having soirees whenever he's in, whenever he was in D.C. So these guys have known him for a while. But let, let me ask you a question. So if Saudi Arabia pays for terrorists, some of them co- commit 9-11. We go after Saddam Hussein, which indirectly or directly threatened Saudi Arabia as an adversary. I mean, do we do you think they were playing a long game? Do you think maybe things got out of hand? Because I know that they, they send a lot of the people to fight in other countries, like Osama bin Laden, who comes back. He's now radicalized. He's now uh, he's now an experienced fighter. Uh, maybe he wants to free his own people. I don't know. But when you when you mess with young people and you send them out and they learn very dangerous skills and they come back, I mean that's just I don't know. You're 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 sticking your head in the lion's mouth, or you're I don't you're you're risking a lot for the stability of your own country in the future. Well, obviously, they, if, okay, let's join some dots. If it is true, and it seems to be, that the Saudis were behind the 9-11 attacks, Mm -hmm. then they did it because they wanted to give Bush a reason to invade various places in the Middle East. Okay. Um, Why would they want to do that? Well... We also know, going back to earlier episodes, that Saudi money, Saudi oil money, has been propping up the U.S. economy for oh, yeah. 40 years since, uh, um, what's his face? Kissinger did Reagan? a deal with them. Oh, no, Kissinger okay. did, a deal with him in the, did a deal with them in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, how do they... How do yeah. they benefit from the U.S.? So what's happened? So so, so let's draw a line. So uh, after the 9-11 attacks, what's happened around the world? Briefly, you know, in the U.S. Yeah. So the U.S.'s military budgets have gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. military involvement in the, in the Middle East has, uh, you know, escalated uh, in Afghanistan, in uh, Iraq, in uh, Libya, uh, also, the U.S. economy has taken this variety of hits, partially as a result of their increased military spending. Um, lots of other reasons as well, but certainly that's part of it because there's uh, you know hundreds of billions yeah. of dollars a year going into the military. Um, so, how does how do the Saudis stand to benefit from a weakening U.S. economy? and uh, uh, greater U.S. involvement in the Middle East. Well, we know that the Saudis want to control the Middle East. They want all mm-hmm. of the oil where there is oil because, uh, you know, there's there's a shelf life on how much oil they can actually pull out of their own country. They don't have endless supplies of oil. Um, they also want to have military supremacy, particularly over the Shia and and conflicting Sunni regimes for control over, you know, the, the, the future of the Sunni. So, yeah, I mean, if, if they can weaken the other Arab regimes and remain strong themselves, that plays in their favour. 
Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. I'm wondering also if the U.S. economy is struggling. Does that mean they need more? Well, the Saudis can come in and buy. That's one other thing we've seen happen in the last 17 years is the Saudis have been coming in and buying up huge amounts of U.S. infrastructure. The um, Saudi royal funds are going in to buy bridges and highways and other forms of infrastructure right across the U.S., Um, and we also learned on an earlier show that it just came out recently that they own, was it $700 billion in U.S. Treasury bonds? Mm -hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia is basically using the U.S. to weaken its enemies in the Middle East while at the same time quietly buying the U.S. That's a pretty good plan. And, of course, in in all that, you can't forget the... uh, the rich stockholders in America that have um, stocks in these various military industrial complex uh, companies. Um, so I imagine, because we're getting close to an hour, but I imagine you've got Bandar, who's got all this experience. He's got the ear of the king. He's got vast uh, resources, money to pull from. When Syria starts getting um, unstable, you've got to imagine this guy is going to be the one who's going to hopefully take advantage of it for um, the betterment of Saudi Arabia because, I mean, he's got the experience, he's got the money, let's put him in there and let's see what he can do to undermine Assad or whatever whatever other goals, uh, long-term and short-term, that Saudi Arabia may have. Mm. Well, moving on, in July of 2011, the Syrian ambassador to Iraq, Nawaf al Fares defected to the opposition. He was the most senior diplomat so far to defect. He gave a statement to Al Jazeera saying, I urge all honest members of this party to follow my path because the regime has turned it into an instrument to kill people and their aspiration to freedom. Damn. Also in July, there was a suicide blast uh, in Damascus. You want to talk about that? Yeah, just that they were able to get uh, the place of bomb pretty close, um, you know, relatively close to Assad. And in the large explosion, three security chiefs were were killed. Um, Daoud Rajha, the Syrian um, defense minister, and Asef Sakat, I'm probably saying his name wrong, President uh, Bashar al-Assad's brother-in-law. So again, even though this war has been spreading out all through the country, uh, the people who are in charge in Damascus, their lives aren't much safer than everyone else because someone was willing to give up their own life at a chance to take out some of the leaders. So this is getting more dangerous for all the major players as each day goes by. Yeah, the suicide blast, uh, I think it was a car bomb, um, at the National Security Building in Rauda mm. Square in Damascus. Also killed were Syria, uh, Bashar's security advisor, Hassan Turkmani, and the interior minister, Mohammed Ibrahim al-Shah. Damn. So a lot of people in the government, very close to Bashar, were killed. Um, it was alleged that... Uh, no, actually, so this one wasn't a car bomb... The, the two versions of it, one of them said that it was a bodyguard, one of Assad's bodyguards who was a suicide bomber. Um, the Syrian opposition claimed responsibility, but the Free Syrian Army claimed that the explosion was remote controlled and not a suicide attack. Mm. So we don't really know which it was. But anyway, it was um, pretty, pretty close. Uh, 
Now, there's another UNSC vote, Security Council vote. Russia and China vetoed this one again about the Security Council getting involved. Syrian ambassador to Cyprus, Lamia al-Hariri, then defected, um, which now makes three ambassadors have defected publicly. She was the niece, or is the niece, of the Syrian vice president, Farouk al-Sharaa. So uh, that's, you know, that's getting pretty close then uh, when your vice president's niece uh, defects. Then in August, the Syrian prime minister, Riyad (laughs) Farid Hijab, defected, went to Jordan with his family. Three other ministers defected with him. And still, uh, Bashar was saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Nothing's happening. It's all good. I don't. I, Barbara, what proof do you have? I mean, there's nothing's going on here. It's all fake news, my friends. Fake news. I don't know. But just to, as long to as finish the people up, support me, yeah. To finish up, I wanted to talk about President Obama and his red line, not his rat line. Got a rat line and a red right. line, Obama. The well, rat line before you running- do. Before you do that real quick, I just want to throw in Der Spiegel said that um, uh, according to uh, sources that they had, several of the defectors did defect because they were bribed by French Secret Service uh, people as well as agents of Qatar. So, again, you never know what's what's true, what's going on. But all these countries around uh, Syria who want to be able to have influence over it after it falls or whatever, they seem to be getting in and causing as much trouble for Assad as they possibly can. And that's quite possible. I mean, you can imagine that if, you know, shit's going to hell in a handbasket in your country and foreign governments or foreign entities who want to weaken the al-Assad regime come to you and say, listen... Just defect. We're going to set you up. There's like, you know, $20 million. You'll be set for life. Don't worry about it. It's all good. You know, we will protect you and your family. You'll be safe. Just come here. When we take, when we get Assad out and uh, we take over, there'll be a job for you, better job. It's all good. I can't imagine that sort of thing goes on. Um, And then they, you know, talk some shit. But so that's, that's possible. Um, but I think the most probable situation here is they are trying to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible because it's, um, yeah, shit's not going well. So look, it it is possible that these guys were being bribed to leave or maybe they just saw the writing on the wall and said, let's get the fuck out of Dodge. Now, um, I want to talk about colored lines, Ray. Now, uh, do you have a do you have a favorite color for a line? <clears throat> no, no, I haven't really thought about it. You? Well, I mean, Obama famously talked about is the red line right. regarding Syria and the use of sarin gas. I, my favorite color line is white. Ah, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Nose candy.
once. <laughs> Hiya, baby. You got to hand it to Duran Duran, man. They did a fucking awesome cover. Um, that rocks. So, um, yeah, uh, let's play this clip. So, on August 20, 2012... It's hard to say. Let's do it the other way. On the 20th of August, 2012, that's better... President Obama gave a speech where he said the use of chemical weapons would be a red line. Let's hear him in action. I have, uh, at this point, not ordered military uh, engagement in the situation, but the point that you made about uh, chemical and biological weapons is critical. Uh, That's an issue that doesn't just concern Syria. It concerns our close allies in the region, including Israel. Uh, it concerns us. Uh, we cannot have a situation where chemical or biological weapons are falling into the hands of the wrong people. Uh, we have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground, that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation. Oh, remember when you had a president that used big words like calculus and equation? Who knew big words? I have all the best words. He had all the best words, Obama. Oh, God. So, so, so let me just ask you this real quick um, because of the, the World War II podcast, but we can do it now or we can do it on the next episode. But does it matter when you kill the enemy and or civilians if you use a knife? a gun, a bomb, or chemical agents. I mean, why does it stick in our head? And and I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just asking, why does it stick in our head so bad that the chemical weapons, if you kill them that way, that's it, red line, I'm going to do something. If you kill them any other way, I'll be disappointed, but I won't take any action. Is that because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Do we just have that? ingrained in us from that experience? Yeah, I I think this comes from the Geneva Conventions that were signed after World War II Mm -hmm. regarding the protection of civilians. You know, we we obviously saw in World War II all sides, uh, the the Germans, the, the Soviets, the Americans, the British, the Japanese, the Chinese... Um, just indiscriminately targeting civilians. Um, And so there were, you know, conventions that were agreed upon by most countries of the world after World War II that that was unacceptable. We weren't going to do that again. And anyone who did indiscriminately target civilians would be condemned and it would be considered um, a crime uh, under international law. And that's one of the things about chemical weapons um, is that they are indiscriminate. You, you you fire it, they spread out, they they kill civilians right. in a particularly brutal way. But as you say, yeah, like killing someone with a bomb, killing someone with gas, what does it really matter? I think it's, it's more a case of it's indiscriminate. You're not firing it at a target that's going to have a limited range of uh, effectiveness. Mm-hmm. It, it can... It can just seep through into the air, into the water. It can be carried on clothing. It can kill a whole bunch of people that are unintended um, uh, targets. Right, you know? right. Well, 
um, just I, I know we're way over time, and I apologize, but you might know this if you've been paying attention to news specific to Virginia. But this Saturday, there's going to be an alt-right demonstration uh, in Charlottesville, 30 minutes from where I live. We've already had one, but this time there's going to be over a thousand of them coming. They're coming from several different states. A lot of them are going to be armed. Uh, a lot of sections of Charlottesville are going to be shut down on Saturday. Parts of the hospital, which is which employs tens of thousands of people in central Virginia, is going to be shut down. Only the emergency services are going to be op- uh, open. The cops are going to be out in force. Um, and so we're, we are sitting there talking about uh, marching and protest and violence, whether it's planned or whether it's spontaneous or whether it's just an opportunity, whatever. But that stuff might be happening here in a couple of days, and it just... I don't know. It just, it just freaks me out that we, you know, because we're sitting there talking about it's nice and safe. It's way over there in the Middle East. But then when it comes to your when it comes to your area, it becomes, you know, obviously a lot more real and a lot more scary um, for you and for the people that you care about. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary shit. That's. Yeah. So, so what are you going to do? Are you going to just. You know, hide in your uh, yeah. house. And, I'm going to hide. You know, I mean, we're, we thank back. God we live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so I'm just going to stay here um, and just watch, kind of watch the news on Saturday. But um, I, I think people are coming to make trouble. Someone's coming to make trouble, no matter which side it's on. So we'll just have to see how it goes. But just thank goodness I do not live in Charlottesville. I imagine a lot of people, we're talking thousands of people, are, are going to be getting the hell out of there this this weekend. And just Whoa, be, and it's all uh, over the ro- taking down of the Robert E. Lee statue. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that because they want to take down a Robert E. Lee statue. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, wow, as been, long as it's not as I've long been, as it's not the car. If you like a statue of the Robert E. Lee, the car from Dukes of Hazard, or oh, Robert I would e. be Lee. fighting too. Yeah, no, I would be. I'd be yeah, you don't <laughs> the fuck Civil with the Civil War General. No, yeah, I've been here since '86, <laughs> and I've and I've driven past that statue a billion times and because i'm from the south never thought of it and which is completely horrendous on my part i get that i never thought about how a person of color or whatever would look at that from oh yeah there's robert e lee he you know whatever led the the forces of the confederate uh, confederacy and and just the fact that they want to take it down now i mean it has just spurred this reaction that i don't think a lot of people predicted but now we have to deal with it and we'll just we'll just see what happens yeah, I'm just looking at the news. Washington Post, Charlottesville prepares for a white nationalist rally on yeah. Saturday. Mm-hmm. And, and UVA white hospitals are pretty, they're pretty hardcore. When they say, don't come to work unless you work in the surgical units, I mean, they're, they're giving up money and stuff like that, and UVA hospital doesn't do that. So it must be, they must have, you know, gotten advice or something from the local police or, or whatever. I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty intense around here. It says the planned event and one held July 8th by the Ku Klux Klan for the same reason. Yeah. The Ku Klux Klan had an event in Charlottesville on July 8th. That was that was really small and a lot of the people because it was so small the people who were protesting against them actually harassed them to a degree followed them around, videotaped them, got their name and addresses or the license plate number and were able to put the information out there because some of them had masks on, whatever. This is a whole different kettle of fish. This is over a thousand people that are supposed to show up and a lot of them are supposed to be armed because you can be. I mean, it's not there. As far as I know, they're going to be armed within the law, but still fr- fucking armed. So I don't know. 
it's just we're just sitting there studying the stuff and i'm and i'm thinking about it and i had this comp- complete disconnect in my head until i remember to tell my wife she has to go somewhere on saturday i told her to drive all the way around charlottesville don't even go through it and and now we're sitting there talking about this stuff and it just becomes very real for you very quickly because you're like and this is america this could never happen here it's about to happen in two days to a, to a certain the degree ca- KKK still wear their hoods. They walk around with hoods. Yes, and now they got shield. It's like Captain America, but it's a semi-religious Nazi black, red, white symbol. I don't know. I've seen pictures from the last one. And so I'm like, that's a piece of wood, buddy. If someone shoots at you, you're fucked. But anyway, if it makes you feel like Captain America, you go right ahead. And they do wear wear the hoods, yes. All right. In our next episode, uh, we will be talking about the sarin gas attacks in 2013 yeah. um, that happened in Syria. So uh, stick around for that. Well, it's time for another review, Ray. Um, mm-hmm. Here's a review from... Oh, Beg Poo. I can't do Beg Poo again. We just did him on another show. Um, right. It sounds familiar. Good try, Beg Poo. Um, nice one. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, one from the United Kingdom. Raukarota. Are you a plebtard? Listen in and learn a thing or two. The kind of podcast that should wake up some of the plebtards living in the West. Know what your governments are up to in your name. You are being led astray by the media in your countries. Learn to question and understand why those refugees that you don't want on your doorstep are there. Gay Ray and Cam the Man... Gay Ray and Cam the Man Ram... We'll keep you entertained throughout with the kind of humor that we all love. Man love. You know, top I'm not always the bottom. Gentlemen. I'm not always the bottom. I just want, okay, go ahead. Cam the man ram. <laughs> Fuck, I'm getting that put on a t-shirt, Rokota. You, Rokota, you win. You win the internet for today, my friend. Send us I'm an not email. I'm getting it on a t-shirt. Send us uh-huh. an email if you can work out what our email address is and uh, give us your address and we will send you a thank you gift for... Coming up with Cam the Man Ram. That's yeah. That's fantastic. Shit, 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 shit.